Um, as we discuss this topic, I really want to talk about not just sexual immorality, but really like overcoming it. Um, I think one part of the discussion is kind of defining, making sure we understand what the Bible is talking about when it says something like sexual immorality or some translations would say fornication, something like that. Um, but also just saying, like, what has the Bible given us to, to deal with this, right? Um, so I'll start with the, a little bit of the first part as we define terms here a little bit. Um, it's a little bit, I feel like it's kind of the elephant in the room um, talking about, like, sexual sin, sexual temptations. Because, one, frankly, I don't enjoy, like, standing in front of a bunch of people and talking about, the challenges, the temptations I have specifically with this. That's not fun to think about. Um, it's also not fun to like think about you guys having those temptations because it's awkward for me to think about myself having them and it's even more awkward to think about other people having them, right? And it's uh, just, it can be a kind of an odd conversation to have. Um, so it's kind of, to me, feels like an elephant in the room because statistics say all of us have this, yet I don't ever really want to talk about it. Um, and it doesn't mean that all of us struggle or are tempted or deal with the same things, but studies have shown that vast majority of people succumb to this temptation that they have to fulfill whatever sexual desires in non-traditional ways. And what I mean by that, as we're talking today, is biblical ways, ways that men, humankind, have kind of had innate within them that they know is true either by explicitly following God's word or by nature itself defining it um there are things and ways that we're tempted that people often succumb to in fact i'm going to offer some statistics and this isn't to like scare us or uh, shame us or anything it's just why it is sort of the elephant in the room and this is just statistically speaking uh i'm going to offer some different statistics that reveal different angles or aspects of what sexual immorality is. And so this also helps us define it a little bit. In uh, the Greek, many of you may have heard this before, but the Greek word that is often translated for sexual immorality or fornication is porneia or pornea, something like that. We get the word pornography from that root word. So that gives you an idea, and it's kind of a, a suitcase word that can really mean like a lot of different things. But the idea is that anything that is not... Um, God's purpose for sexual desire. So that would turn into, right, a need to study what is God's design for sexual desire, sexual fulfillment. And certainly we see from Genesis 1 that he creates man and then he says very quickly, well, there's not a helper suitable for me in all the earth. And so God sets out to create something or someone from his own rib and he names him woman. And he gives man and woman to each other. And it says as they leave father and mother and that they'll cling to one another. And we know that as the Bible continues to discuss this topic, as we read in 1 Corinthians 6 even, the idea is that the two would become one. And there's so many ways that that's true, not just sexually, but certainly as 1 Corinthians 6 describes it, when you give your body to someone, you've become one with them in a biblical, godly, purpose-driven sense, right? A spiritual sense. And so... That is kind of the definition of what God has put in place for sexual fulfillment, for oneness in that regard. And so anything with outside of that would be immoral, right? A moral is to have a standard or a purpose to something. That certainly 
we understand as God defines that, right? So anything that's not within that standard is immoral, right? So that's defined in so many ways biblically, but some of these statistics shed light on a few of those immoralities or aspects. 64% of those who are 13 to 24 seek out pornography at least weekly. That's not that they've seen it, it's that they seek it out at least weekly. 64%. 41% of marriages where one, uh, there are 40%, 41% of marriages where one or both spouses admit to some sort of infidelity. So that's another form of sexual immorality. 74% of men, 68% of women who uh, say they would have an affair if they knew they would never be caught. Now, I looked up these statistics um, on the internet, like I look up most things these days, and I didn't cite the sources here, but I tried to find sources that seemed reputable to me, that weren't just like no source cited. So I didn't write them down, but just know I tried to do at least some due diligence to say that these weren't totally made up. There was some research group or whatever that gave these. 95% of men and 89% of women admit to masturbation. That's an awkward one to talk about. Um, but all these things really represent aspects, right, of sexual immorality or fornications. You have pornography, you have masturbation, you have affairs and adultery, right? And certainly we could go further. You could have uh, homosexual tendencies and temptations, even the Bible talks about, even in the old law, right, not having sexual relationships with beasts or animals. Like, there's all kinds of ways that we can manipulate sexual desires to be immoral, right? And the Bible talks a lot about this, um, and it really doesn't give preference one over another. And I think that's why we have this term sexual immorality, is because they're all equally sinful, um, they're not in God's design. They're not in God's purpose for man and for woman, right? Any one of these things. Um, and so it's the elephant in the room. Statistics say, you know, in a general sense, people succumb to this stuff. We don't have a lot of self-control when it comes to this. Our culture is becoming one, the American culture, I won't speak to the world, where there's less and less of a feeling of guilt or taboo about fulfilling some of these desires, right? And that obviously is going to pervade even in believers. We grow up in this culture, we live here, and so we're going to feel this push and pull, this tension between when I read the Bible and when I hang out with my friends and my family and whatever, or when I go to school or work. And so I want to just talk in very simple terms um, about just some really basic truths the Bible lays out about sexual immorality, um, primarily actually pulled from Proverbs chapter 5. Um, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, that's where we'll spend most of our time. If you're someone who uses that little bookmarky thing in your Bible, feel free to use that. I hardly ever use it. Um, but that's where we're going to spend most of our time. That is not where we're going to start. All right. Um, one thing that I want to offer before we get into that that's not in Proverbs chapter 5 is almost feels like a caveat, um, but is not. It's just another truth concerning sexual morality, and that is this. Um, sexual desires are not sinful. Um, sinful desires are. 
I know that sounds like a really basic thing to say, but um, I think at least when I was a teenager, there's a lot of like weird feelings going on about just life. And I th- remember very distinctly having like a sense of guilt for feeling sexual desires just in and of themselves. And that carries on if we don't like address that. That can carry on for a long time in ourselves, especially as we remain single or we're seeking out relationships. We feel like a tension of like, man, I feel guilty for feeling this. That's not a problem. That's not a sinful thing to feel. God designed us to feel that. Um, but it's the sinful desires that are sinful, and we need to parse those out, right? And I'm going to illustrate this um, using biblical texts and teachings. Um, certainly, we understand that in Genesis chapter 2, God gave man to woman. We already talked about that. Ephesians 5 talks about marriage relationship as well. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about um, it gives us some of the intent, and by implication, we see some of the purpose of marriage as being you don't hold, withhold your body from each other um, in that discussion, and that's speaking to sexual desire. We are married in many instances, and part of, the, or part of that is we get to fulfill some of those desires that we have right, as human beings. But I think one story that um, we won't turn to but I'll recount for us is in 2 Samuel 11 with David and Bathsheba. It's a familiar story. If you've read the Bible, it's maybe one of the first stories that you can remember, um, at least that I could remember, that seemed really sad. Like, I just remember learning that story and being like, man, that's messed up. Um, And it really is because it's a story about how someone, David, goes out on his rooftop and he sees a woman, right? And he has a sexual desire for her. The problem is... Not his seeing of her. His problem is what he does with that. And his sexual desire turns into lustful intent. And what I mean by that is that he actually sins for her. He has a feeling and he pursues that feeling in an immoral way because he's not her husband. right? And so he sins for her and certainly the story unfolds very negatively for David. Um, We see... All the fallout that that creates when he uh, commits adultery with her. But it's natural. I I think in a lot of ways it would be a natural desire, most of us would say, for a man to see a beautiful woman naked and have a sexual desire there. Um, And vice versa. I would imagine that women would feel similarly if they saw an attractive man for a moment. In that split second, you might have a feeling that arises But David's fault was not the feeling. It was the intent to sin for her and the plotting and the sleeping with her and all the things that come with that. And it turns into an adulterous relationship, right, which was an immoral thing. In fact, in Matthew chapter 15, God talks a little bit about this. Jesus says, um, he's, he's, I'm not even really zeroing in on sexual immorality, but he mentions it in Matthew 15. And I think this is an important text uh, because even though he's... In the context, he's really talking about cleanness and uncleanness and how the Jews were caught up with washing their hands and how cleanness came in these rituals. And he's really saying that cleanness comes from the inside. And look at what he says beginning in Matthew 17 or 15, sorry, Matthew 15, verse 17. Do you not see, this is Jesus speaking, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, 
And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now Jesus, you know, is painting with a broad brush here. His scope is a little bigger than just, you know, the sexual sins that he mentions. But I think this is important for our discussion. And this is why I felt like it was a little bit of a caveat before we dive into Proverbs 5. To see that sexual desires are not the problem. It's the sinful desires that are. To feel what God has designed me to feel is not an issue. It's when I feel things that are sinful and pursue those that are the problem. Out of the heart come evil things, evil thoughts, right? These are defiling things. It's not sexual feeling or sexual desire. It's the immoral aspect of what is sexual. It's the adultery that comes with these temptations, right? These things are defined as evil so I just wanted to start with that. God's design and purpose wasn't, you know, to, to create within us a sinful thing. It was to create within us an opportunity to, be, to have a relationship, uh, to be one with someone, to be able to understand sacrifice as Ephesians 5 describes it, to understand Christ and the church better in our relationships that I have with my husband or my wife. And it's not... To create within us shame or guilt. But certainly, if I defile myself by turning that into something where I desire an immoral aspect of what is sexual, or I desire adultery, or as he describes in Matthew chapter uh, either 5 or 6, I can't remember, where he talks about the one who lusts after a woman in his own heart, it's like he's committed adultery in a sense because. That's what he wants, right? It's de- he's defiled himself according to Matthew chapter 15, not because he had a sexual desire, but because he looked at her to lust after her, right? And so I think that's worth saying that sexual desires are not evil. Sinful desires are evil, right? Um, but I didn't want to spend a ton of time on that. There's a lot more you could say about it. I want to go ahead and move to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. So I am am passing kind of defined some of the ways that we could be talking about sexual immorality. Um, One way I defined it and I think is a true description or definition is anything that's not according to God's purpose, which is sexual fulfillment in a marriage, right? Like you can, uh, in some sense, fulfill that sexual desire in your marriage, right? Anything outside of that would be sexually immoral. To be specific, seeking out pornography, to masturbate or whatever, that would be sexually immoral. Committing uh, adultery with someone else's wife or husband, that would be a sexually immoral thing to do, right? Um, Having sexual relationship with someone of the same gender or sex as you would be a sexually immoral thing to do. Uh, That's clearly defined in the Bible. Uh, There's a bunch more. Having sexual relationships with an animal or a beast is clearly a sexually immoral thing to do. Um, These are the types of things that I want to talk about. And this is a real caveat. In Proverbs chapter 5, this is framed, as we read, you'll see this. It's framed as a man avoiding the temptation of a harlot because he has his own wife. Now, I want to offer this caveat because... 
I'm going to use this, Proverbs 5, as a description of how to avoid all kinds of sexual immorality, not just that specific scenario. Because I think that's what it is. And I think that was worth saying. Not all of us are men that have wives that we're avoiding adultery. Some of us are in different situations, but I think this all applies. All right, so in Proverbs chapter 5, let's read verses 1 through 6. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She doesn't ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she doesn't know it. We're going to end up reading through all of chapter 5, but I want to stop here for a moment. The first truth that we uh, see concerning sexual immorality was that sexual desires are not evil. Sinful desires are. Right? That's the first truth we need to understand when we're talking about sexual immorality. We need to start in that place. The second thing from Proverbs 5 that I want us to see is that sexual immorality leads to death. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 says just as much. Actually, just before the reading that Josh gave us um, in verses like 10 and 11, maybe 9, 10 and 11, I can't remember. He says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Um, in Proverbs chapter 5, when you pursue this sexually immoral relationship here, it's portrayed as adultery. I'm going to zoom it out. When you pursue it, where does it lead you? The path of that relationship, as it's described here, is to Sheol which is uh, an Old Testament Hebrew concept of like death. Right? It just leads to a place where you go down to death, you go to Sheol. It's contrasted against the path of life. Right? And that really is kind of in a broad sense the two paths we take, right? Like either my feet are walking the path to life or my feet are walking the path to death. And one of the really quick, simple, surefire ways to make sure I'm walking towards death is to pursue sexual immorality. In whatever form you're tempted to pursue it, whatever form or context is the fitting form or context for your life, if you pursue that, just know that that's where it's going to take you. Um, another thing to see in this is uh, the great one of the great lies, if not the great lie, of a sexually immoral temptation is that it is good. That it's fulfilling. And that it's worthy of your pursuit. Right? That's the great lie of it. Did you notice that, like, this lady, her lips are dripping with honey? I like honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. I can always appreciate someone who can... Sweet talk, you know? This seems like a good scenario. It seems like an appealing thing. But the reality is she's bitter. She's not really sweet like the honey would make you think, right? Um, and she's leading you to a place that's not good, and she doesn't even realize she is, right? Isn't that how sexual immorality in whatever form that you're tempted in? Isn't that the reality of it? Is if you think it's going to be good, you think it's what you want, you think it's what you need, and if unfortunately you've ever succumbed to that temptation, which statistics say we have, then you know it's not. 
Like, you know you have that temptation again tomorrow or the next day or a week later or whatever. It's bitter as wormwood, right? It only leads to death. Let's read the next verses. So th this section, the truth is, right, it leads to death. So what you need to ask yourself, are, am I walking the path of life or am I walking the path of death? Let's read 7 through 14. And now, O sons, listen to me. Don't depart from the works of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of their life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. The truth that uh, godly wisdom provides us here about sexual immorality is that um, it's harmful to us. So the first section reflects on how ultimately we're dead, right? Like if we pursue sexual immorality, the end is death. But this is almost the portrait of the in-between. You know, like we're going to die and we need to understand that. But in the meantime, it ruins your life, right? Now, I don't want to offer you guys a false picture of what I think is being said here. I don't think that this means that every endeavor in your life is going to fail and look like a failure. Because obviously that's not true. We know sexually immoral people that their life looks like a success. Right? We had a man die who operated a multi-million if not billion dollar industry from a magazine company that was based on sexually immoral concepts and pursuits and to everyone uh, in the American culture, he seemed like a successful man, right? So what I think is being said here is that your life will be a mess, is that your life will be ruined, but particularly among godly people. Because it says here in verse 14, I am on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Right? And all of the, the things that this guy's worked for and when he ends up succumbing to what's sexually immoral, what he ends up observing is it's kind of going to other people. Right? I don't know exactly how this would play out to be true in every scenario, but I can imagine it to be. I can see how it would be sensibly true. Wisdom would say that that would be true. Someone who gives themselves over fully to the pursuits of the flesh and sexually immoral um, avenues and pursuits um, we see ruin in that um, we see marriages destroyed friendships broken families and houses uh, divided we see money lost we see businesses given up um, to the people that pursue sexually immoral things th those kinds of things happen to them does it happen to everyone in every sense no but what we understand from this is that your honor is gone, your life is gone, your strength is gone, your work is fruitless, or goes to other people, I guess I should say. And at the end of it all, what do you do? You realize all of those things are gone, and you groan. And the only person that you have to blame 
when you live a life that pursues sexually immoral things is yourself. In verse 12, how I, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin. You've created opportunities for people to take advantage of you, to harass you, to malign you, to dishonor you. Uh, and at the end of the day, you're really just going to blame yourself for it. There's really no one to blame but yourself. And so the question that I'm going to ask you guys to kind of think about for yourselves is, are you the one who hates the discipline of the Lord or embraces it? If you're someone who embraces the discipline of the Lord, it seems to me that you wouldn't be saying at the end of your life, verse 12. You would have avoided all of this. Uh, you would have loved discipline and you would have taken reproof and you would have avoided the downfall that someone like this who succumbs to this this woman, right, uh, succumbs to. The next truth I want us to see is in verses 15 through 20. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Uh, the writer here, in sharing godly wisdom... <laughs> I think the truth about sexual immorality that's revealed in this text, text is that it can be overcome and avoided by what God has given you. In this instance, he's talking to someone who, I guess, has a wife. And he's saying, like, look, this temptation that you're feeling to, to find this woman, this harlot, just take pleasure in what you have, what God has given you. You have a beautiful wife that you can love and that you can enjoy, right? And some of us, that may be true. Like literally, we may have an exact parallel situation. We may say, that woman looks great, but I have a wife. Or that man is awesome, but I have a husband. We may be in that like parallel situation. But I think the broader truth that we're seeing here is God gives us, any one of us, like if we take stock of what God has given us in the life that we have, we can find what we need that is already available to us to overcome that temptation that we may be feeling. I think the Bible lays that out plainly. I didn't uh, dive into too deep all the ways that this could be true, but I kind of uh, generally looked at this. And when I was thinking about it, I was like, man, is that really like true in the like the most specific sense? Is like anyone who's facing a sexual temptation have in Jesus what they need to overcome that in the sense that this guy's talking about it? Do we all have our wives, so to speak? The more I thought about it, the more it's true. And what I mean by this is, uh, you know, for, for those of us who are married, one of the graces God has given us when we feel this temptation is our spouse. Like, we have a spouse, as he says here, to fill you at all times with delight, right? Like, we have that. That should be maybe an avenue, an avenue, not the avenue, an avenue that we can pursue that is moral that God has given us to overcome a sexual desire. But what about the many of us who are not in that position, right? 
I was thinking about this a lot. Uh, and, I, you know, I'd be happy to talk about this more afterwards because I think there's more to say about this. But I believe it's absolutely true that God supplies any person with what they need to overcome any temptation. And that's where I started. Uh, there's one plain text that says almost exactly that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? There's no temptation that is overtaking you that which isn't common to man, and God can deliver you from that temptation, right? He will. So that's the starting place. And then as I thought more about this, I remember as we've studied through John, in John chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, God has bestowed upon us grace upon grace, And then he ultimately describes Jesus and how Jesus brings grace and truth. And so I thought, okay, well, if God is going to deliver us from all temptation, and one of the graces of Proverbs 5 seems to be for people that are married, they have a spouse. What about the rest of us? Well, I think as I thought more about that, really the true grace is Jesus. And the true grace is that God gave him to us. And how he really is married to the church, which if I'm a Christian... That's me. And so even though I may be a husband, I may be a wife, whatever your situation may be, you can find, as he says, uh, fullness or you may be filled at all times with delight. Even that isn't going to fill you in the truest sense. There are spouses and there are uh, husbands and wives that have great relationships that don't always feel fulfilled in their marriage because God is that thing that really fills us he really gives us grace upon grace to feel complete right and whole and so really the answer actually boils down to the same thing whether you're married or not married you may have a spouse that you can literally fulfill sexual desires with you may not but ultimately it's a lot like what paul says sometimes grace is found in a spouse we can love uh sometimes it's even this grace to help us overcome these temptations is found in godly friends who discourage immorality uh, good friends, cor- godly friends, right? Corrupt, uh, don't corrupt good morals is the converse is what I'm trying to say, right? Bad friends do corrupt good morals. We can have godly friends that help us overcome these things. Um, also, we can have, and I like this text in Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul's talking about this thing, this thorn in the flesh that's bothering him, and he keeps asking for it to go away. And it says he prayed like three times about it, and God's answer was no. My grace is sufficient for you. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I think that ultimately really is the answer. The most true, deep answer. Um, The truth that's reflected, I think, most deeply in Proverbs chapter 5 when he says, you know, find your fill in your wife. Why have what is yours scattered in the streets and have other people enjoy it? Like you just enjoy what's yours. You enjoy your wife, not another man's woman, not an adulteress, not a prostitute. Enjoy what God has given you. That's absolutely true. God has given us Jesus. Why can't we just find fulfillment in that regardless of our relationship status? Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace 
to help in the time of need. I have no idea what kind of sexual temptations that Jesus faced. I have no idea like what his temptation was or his temptations were in that arena. But he faced them. And yet he was without sin. And so, as a Christian, regardless of my relationship status, whenever I face a temptation, whenever I'm tempted to, to hook up with that lady at work, or you're interested in that guy that you met at school, or you're tempted to open up your web browser and start looking at things you shouldn't look at, you know that you, as a Christian, have a mediator who's faced the similar types of temptations and yet was without sin so that you could appeal to that throne of grace. And in those moments where you have need, when you have help that you're searching for, you can go to God. You can go to the throne of grace, not of judgment, not of justice. It's not described that way in that context. In those moments, it's grace and mercy. So why can't we be filled with that? Why can't we, like Paul, realize that sometimes we have a thorn, so to speak, and grace is all we need? It's sufficient for us. Um, so do you believe that God provides every grace that you need to overcome and to avoid whatever sexually immoral temptations you have? For those of us who have husbands and wives and things to maybe help mitigate some of that, the bottom line is we still rest on this truth that God has to supply and fulfill us or ultimately even those relationships are hollow. So we all end up in the same place. The last truth that I think um, is revealed about sexual immorality and conquering it here in chapter 5 is at the very end of this reading, beginning in verse 21, Proverbs 5, 21. For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked man ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray. The truth that's revealed here is that sexual immorality is foolish and it demonstrates um, to God one's lack of discipline. Uh, I think it's really important to think of it that way. Um, the more I, I think about being a Christian, the more I read God's word, the more important I think wisdom actually is. For a long time, and I still feel this way sometimes, and I'm not trying to diminish commandments of the Lord because they certainly exist. And at the end of the day, we either obey them or we don't. But more and more I'm realizing godly wisdom is really like the oil that keeps everything together, right? Like if you're thinking about a machine, like you have parts that like if they're not there, it doesn't work. Those are kind of like commandments to me. It's like it is or it isn't. But then like godly wisdom is really what makes it all operate and makes it more than just law keeping. It makes it a love and it makes it a passion and a zeal and a righteousness because I'm operating with a mindset that is godly, right? What's offered in this text is the realization that if you fail to resist the temptations of this beautiful, appealing woman, of sexual immorality, you've demonstrated yourself as a fool. And you've really shown that you have zero discipline in your life. 
I think that's a really incriminating thing for me oftentimes, unfortunately. Um, I'm found foolish many times. I've found, uh, what's the word? Self-controlless, lacking of self-control. And I think it's important to think in those terms because one of the things that is specifically mentioned as being, as a Christian, when you receive the Spirit and the Spirit's working in you to bear fruit one of the things that's given in that list in Galatians chapter 5 is self-control. And we need to think about sexual immorality as a place that I'm demonstrating a lack of that. And as a Christian, I should be reversing that. God is bearing within me through his spirit self-control. That's a fruit of being a believer. And so ultimately, if I really believe in God, I'm going to demonstrate to him that I'm not a fool. That his spirit is working in me to actually reverse some of the lack of discipline I've had before. And I can actually show restraint. I can show self-control. So ultimately, kind of the application of this is uh, you need to be working with God and bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, specifically self-control. Um, certainly God does amazing things in us. Um, and I don't want to like negate the work that God does within our hearts and in our lives. But if I'm not working with him, if I'm like fighting against that, uh, God has taught us time and time again that he'll let us fight against that. Right? Uh, I mean, think about how many people have known better that, you know, Paul writes about. And that's, this is where we're going to end in Philippians chapter 3. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, this is, this is really the description that I'm getting to is Philippians chapter 3. Think of all the people... That God tried to work in, that God tried to change because they fought him, God let them go down the path to death. That's what Paul's talking about. Even in his experience, he acknowledges that that happens. In Philippians chapter 3, uh, we'll read verses uh, 18 and 19 right now. Look at what Paul says about this. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We all have various sexual temptations. Right. And I hope you understand when I say a sexual temptation, I'm implying an immorality. We all have those. Like studies show, you know, 99% of people deal with that. If you're the 1%, great. You can be like Paul, remain unmarried, serve the Lord fully, do your thing. I wholeheartedly support that. But we all have these temptations. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, unfortunately, some of the people uh, that I guess were Christian or were thinking about being Christians that they all knew, had given up on that. They had decided that really the God they wanted to serve was their belly. And I think that is to say their passions or their lusts. That's what they wanted to serve. But thankfully, we don't all have to make that same choice. Let's look in the same text beginning in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, this is Paul speaking, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything. As loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I'm going to skip down to verse 16. Only let us, now he's including everybody, hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And of course, then he mentions what we just read. Let's move down to verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Sexual desires are not evil. Sinful desires are evil. Sexual immorality leads to death. Proximity even to sexual immorality is harmful to us. We see that. Sexual immorality can be overcome and avoided by the graces God has given to us. That we actually have. Like in Christ, we have them. We have what we need. And that sexual immorality really is foolishness and demonstrates our lack of discipline. And so we have to ask ourselves... uh, is my God my lust, my belly, or do I really believe that God will take care of me and give me what I need to overcome the temptations I face? And do I really believe that these are immoralities? Some of us believe in God and we refuse to accept that what he says about some of these sexual sins are actual immoralities, that they are sins. And God is very plain about them. So we have to be honest. Do I really believe that? Do I really trust him? If you're not a Christian today, uh, you have sexual immoralities just the same as Christians do. You have those temptations just the same as we do. And the problem is you haven't been forgiven of them, the ones that you've pursued sinfully. Nor do you have the fruit of the Spirit bearing out in your life to help you have the control that you need and the reasons to have control that you need to, to deal with that. And so I encourage you, listen to the Word of God. I'd encourage you to believe it. I'd encourage you to obey it. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. um, And start walking with us as we fight against these temptations. If you are a Christian and you've succumbed to some of this stuff, join the club. We all have. Be honest about it. Ask for forgiveness. Just as Simon had to ask forgiveness for the greediness of his heart. You've been greedy in a different kind of way. You've been selfish, lacking discipline. If there's a way that we can help you with that, me... Stephen, whoever, let us know. That's what we're here for. Think about it while we stand and sing.